There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Ebel, son of Zorah, son of Bekorah, son of Athia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any other people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you, and arise, and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, passed through the land of Shalashach. But they did not find them, and they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, and did not find them. When they came to the land of Zub, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, Come. Let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys, and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in the city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he has, all that he, sorry, and all that he says comes true. But now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sack is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill up to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must be blessed to sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Wendy previous part of the story, we saw the people of Israel, well, the elders of Israel, come to Samuel on behalf of the people, and the elders said to Samuel, Samuel, this whole thing that you have arranged with your sons, it's not working out because your sons, they are corrupt, and we want a king. We want a king like the other nations. Of course, they were making this request in line with Deuteronomy chapter 17. They were simply following the instructions of the Old Testament law, which was given uh, almost 200 years before they made this request. We learned last week that they were making this request kind of selfishly, taking the word that God had provided in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and tweaking it, twisting it just a little bit so they could have their preferences met within uh, the community and the nation of Israel. And, and we, we learned that maybe, maybe we do that sometimes too, right? 
take God's word, and no matter how pure our motives are, we, we take this word, and we quote this word, and we use this word in order to support our own understanding, in order to confirm what we already believe, in, in order to do the things that we want to do, and in order to fulfill our preferences. And we talked about how maybe that's not the best way to look at the word of God. Maybe it's best to, to trust God to to do His work and to and to change us from the inside out. We saw before Samuel told the nation of Israel, told the the elders of the nation of Israel, before he told them how this new king would be. This new king, he, he would not do things in line with Deuteronomy chapter 17. God was already telling Samuel to grant the request of the people to do this thing, to appoint them a king, which I will anoint. And these were God's words to Samuel in chapter 8. And so we already know the thing that God is working out with His people. We already know the plan that God has made because He revealed it 200 years earlier. He has already told Samuel, do this. And then Samuel is describing to the people what the king will be like. When we get here to to chapter 9, we are introduced to this king, Saul. Now this text doesn't name him as king. We will see this later in our study together as we walk through the text of, of Scripture. When we see the type of man this king is. And Samuel, according to chapter 8, verse 1, right? Samuel is, is old. And this is the whole reason that he has placed his children as judges in Israel. And, and we see the people complaining about that because his children are corrupt. And then, and then we see a paradigm shift. Things are changing. God is doing something different. Samuel is displeased. But this is the will of God. And God has revealed it to be so. This is what God wants. And so Samuel, in his old age, is having to do something different. He's having to change the way that he does things. And so in this text, not only do we see Saul introduced for us, described for us, but we also see that Samuel, in his old age, is still faithfully serving serving God. And we are going to see both of those things play out. We are going to get to apply both of those things this morning. We're going to consider all of this text at at once this morning. And I'm not going to read it again. This text is uh, pretty difficult to read one part and then comment and then read another part and comment because it's one unit and you can't really separate one part from, from the next. So I want to point out a couple details about who Saul is. First of all, in verse 1, we see that Saul is a man of Benjamin. He is a Benjamite. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. This is going to be very, very important, so please remember that detail. In verse 2, we see that Saul was a choice and handsome man. Tall, dark, handsome. He's all of these things, ladies. Uh oh. That's right. Choice and handsome man. He was a looker. In verse 3, we see that his father lost some donkeys. These donkeys escaped from the pen. And he sent Saul out to look for these for these donkeys. And so in verse 3, we see that Saul actually works hard and he values the family relationship. These seem to be pretty good 
the values. In verse 5, we see that he worries about the things that his father worries about. He says, maybe we should stop looking for these donkeys because it's getting dark and dad's going to worry about us. He's going to become anxious for us. So maybe we should return home, continue our search tomorrow. He worries about the things that his dad worries about. In verses 7 and 8, after they hear about this seer, this prophet named Samuel, he and his servant decided they're going to see the seer to see if the seer can tell them where the donkeys are at, right? Seems pretty good. This guy knows stuff. Let's go talk to him. We don't have anything to take to him. Our sacks are empty. We've eaten all of our food. We see that the Samuel, I mean uh, Saul, is concerned about hospitality, honoring the prophet, honoring men who are in a high position. And so this guy, Saul, seems to be a pretty decent fellow when we read this text, right? And the problem is, Samuel has already described in the text leading up to this one what kind of king Saul will be. He will be a king who does not honor God. He will be a king that lives in direct opposition to God's law in Deuteronomy chapter 17, being exactly the kind of king that God says Israel should not have. Right? And so we read this text, and I want to notice something very, very, very important here. This guy, this guy is kingly material from a human perspective. But we already know, according to the text, that he will not honor God. We know this from Samuel's words, we know this from 200 years before this, when when Moses is giving the law, and we also know this from 600 years prior to this, when Jacob, who was renamed Israel, is telling his sons, his descendants, who would become the 12 tribes, exactly what would become of their tribes. And I want to look at Genesis chapter 49 with you. First, we see in Genesis chapter 49 that when God would place a throne in Israel, when God would place a king in Israel, it would belong to the tribe of Judah. This is why it's important to know that Saul is a Benjamite. The kingship would belong to the tribe of Judah. Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12, we we read this. When Jacob is about to, to die, when Israel is about to die, he brings his sons to him and he says, This is what will become of you. And to Judah, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, Who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments with wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth 
white from milk. What we see about the tribe of Judah here in this text, 600 years before the event described in 1 Samuel, what we see about the tribe of Judah is that the tribe of Judah will have the throne in Israel. The tribe of Judah will rule over Israel. And this will be something that is perpetual, something that lasts forever. Now, when Moses is writing this down and when Jacob said this, there was no king yet. It's still 600 years before God is working things together in such a way that Israel has a, a king, right? Jacob is prophesying to his sons, this is what will become of you, Judah. You will rule perpetually. You will rule perpetually. Now Saul, Saul is a Benjamite. And when Benjamin comes before Jacob and Jacob is blessing Benjamin, here is what he says to Benjamin. Benjamin only has one verse. This is in Genesis 49, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. And in the evening, he divides the spoil. And this sounds a lot like what Samuel described in the previous passage when he was describing what sort of King Saul will, will be. And so even though Saul is a looker, a handsome man, tall, strong, even though he has a powerful presence, even though he is charismatic, even though he is the type of leader that, from a human perspective, we would always choose, right, to be our king or to be our leader. Even 600 years before this, Jacob is telling Benjamin that your tribe will be a ravenous wolf. This is a prophecy, a foretelling of the way that the tribe of Benjamin will be. But how do you know, preacher, that this is about the tribe of Benjamin and not the person Benjamin. And how do you know, preacher, that this is about the tribe of Judah and not the person named Judah? And because Moses explains this in verse 28 of Genesis 49, all these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them everyone with the blessing appropriate to them. So according to Moses, this thing that Jacob was saying to his sons applied to the tribe. It applied to the tribe. So when we are reading this story in 1 Samuel, we, we have to understand this. That even 600 years, you know, last week we saw that almost 200 years before this, God was already saying that there, there will be judges and the nation of Israel will transfer from the time of the judges to the time of the kings, and this is how your king shall be, and this is what you should ask for in a, in a king. You shall ask, says the Lord, for a king like the other nations, and so we can't extrapolate that to say that people were somehow like disobeying God in that regard because that's the instruction they received in Deuteronomy 17. It's not just 200 years before that, though. Even as early as Jacob, 600 years prior to this, God is already saying, through Jacob, through Israel, this is the way the tribes will be. The tribe of Benjamin, from which Saul comes, is a ravenous wolf. This king, according to Samuel, will divide the spoils. 
God was already working this out for at least 600 years. That's when the nation of Israel was, was founded, right? The start of the nation of Israel, God already knows this is happening. It's like God knows his story. And it's kind of amazing, absolutely amazing to think about. And the application here might be obvious to us, maybe not, so let me just present it to you, right? The leaders, the presidents, and other nations, prime ministers, dictators, despots, whatever sort of leadership a country has, right? The leaders we would pick for ourselves are not necessarily the leaders who honor God. Someone could, from our perspective, have the right beliefs. They could say the right things, have the right sort of presence, right? Hold what we think are the correct sort of views. Be powerful and charismatic. Have other features that maybe we look for in a leader. And, and this could be the very person who doesn't honor God. Right? The same is true for like pastors when we choose pastors for our churches. Or churches when, when we're looking for a church to get committed to, be devoted to, with a body of believers who will help us to grow in Christ, like in a legitimate way. Right? The pastors that we would choose for ourselves and have all of the qualities that we would want to look for. He's, oh, this guy's funny. I like him. Oh, this guy's charismatic and energetic. I really like him. This guy has a powerful presence. I really like him. I just like looking at this guy. Oh, this guy has a pretty cool looking ministry and the graphics that this ministry produces are amazing. But the things that we look for in a church or in a pastor, they're not necessarily the, the things that are God honoring, right? But what we see from a human perspective is much different than what God sees, what God is working together. And this doesn't just apply to, to leadership, right? Or elders or, or, or deacons. It's the qualities that we usually look for are probably qualities that we think will benefit us from our perspective. And God's not interested in, you know, uh, making us making us look good or fulfilling our preferences or gratifying us. And we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, right? Okay. God is interested in His glory and our good. So the nation of Israel will want this king, Saul, and God will give this king to them according to their preference, which we discovered last week in the previous passage. It will, it will prove not to be so good for the nation, not to be so honoring to God. And then God will replace this man who is tall, dark, handsome, powerful, charismatic, with a, with a short shepherd boy who doesn't have any leadership skills whatsoever. And we'll learn that as we look at David's story. There are some pretty funny things. You're like, why would David do that? That doesn't make any sense. But God works this together on purpose. So we don't, we don't choose leaders, right, based on the qualities that we think are good qualities. 
we don't choose pastors based on the qualities we think are, are good qualities or, or, or whether or not they're saying something or, or looking a certain way that we just really like. No, we, we spend time in prayer, striving as best we can to discern the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And God, God, I think, blesses that sort of search. And as He changes us from the inside out, I think, I think He gives us that sort of discernment that we might, that we might be able to know and follow His will for our lives and for our searches and for our, for our decisions for the leaders that we would hope to promote. There are a couple other applications here in, in this first section. First, there are many, and I think Saul probably falls into this category, but we, we can't tell from this text, right? Think too highly of themselves. <coughs> Think too highly of themselves. And so if I know that I have a powerful presence, or if I know that I am charismatic, or I know that I am funny, or I know that I am well-educated. I know that I am intelligent. I know that I can make wise decisions. Or I have a lot of experience. And so I know some stuff. Scripture here basically says, look, God, who works things according to the counsel of His own will, God doesn't lean on on our experience. And God doesn't lean on our knowledge. And God doesn't lean on our education. God doesn't lean on our GPA. God doesn't lean on how many degrees we have. God doesn't lean on any of that. God doesn't depend on any of that. But the person who is obviously qualified here to be king, Saul, the guy who's obviously qualified, isn't the person that God will use positively, right? No, God's going to, to go take the youngest brother from a shepherd family in Bethlehem. And he's going to use that kid instead. And so the person who's qualified, God uses, right? Not in a positive way, but God uses. God uses in a negative way. God has said from you know 600 years prior to this that God is going to use this guy for this purpose, as a ravenous wolf. Even though he seems to be, as we read his description, entirely qualified for the job. So as if I think too highly of myself, right? I may be the person that God is using negatively and not positively. Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. We'll put it this way. Paul admits, look, even those who reject God and even those who persecute God's people, they are being used by God. They are not beyond God's control. They are not beyond God's sovereign will. In Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, Paul just spells it out. There are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And there are vessels of glory prepared for that glory, the glory of, of God. <clears throat> Some vessels will be used for the purpose of destruction. Some vessels will be used for the purpose of glory. And Paul makes it very clear. All of these vessels, referring to people, 
are prepared to be this way beforehand. And you see that in Romans chapter 9, verse 23. This is what's going on with Saul here. We even see that God declared what he would do 600 years before this, and then 200 years before this. And then here it's, it's taking place. And in, in the current story, even before Saul appears, Samuel is explaining, this is the sort of king you will have first. And he will not honor that. And he will be a ravenous wolf. And he will divide the spoils for himself. And this is exactly what Saul will do in the coming verses, in the coming chapters. The other way this truth can be applied is this. Some of us think that for some reason we can't do anything. That for some reason we've convinced ourselves that I don't really have any skills, I don't know what kind of spiritual gifts I have, I I don't know if I can do anything because of any number of limitations, right, that I perceive myself to have. I hear the qualified guy is going to be rejected by God and the unqualified guy is going to be a man after God's own heart. What does that say about us if we think we are unqualified to do what God is calling us to do? Well, it means God doesn't lean on what you perceive to be your sufficiencies. God also doesn't lean on what you perceive to be your insufficiencies. And this application is both greatly encouraging and deeply convicting for us. Because sometimes we think too highly of ourselves, and sometimes we, for some reason, whatever reason, we think we can't do anything. Look, God is God, and we are not. God can accomplish whatever He wants through whomever He wants. And this morning, there, there are people probably sitting in here who, who aren't actively striving to serve God in a devoted and a committed way. The question is, why not? Well, we are either, according to Scripture, the vessel that is prepared for destruction or the vessel that is prepared for glory. God is using everyone in some way. The question is, is God using us in a positive way or a negative way? My hope is that we would all be determined. I, I want God to use me in a positive way. I, man, I'm convicted and I need to plug into a place of service. Some opportunities for service are coming up, by the way, with our fall festival. There's a sign-up sheet in the back. If, if you want a role, any responsibility at all for a fall festival that we're having in, in October, November, November 2nd, please sign up. We've got a couple other places of service available for, for, for people who are willing to be trained or feel called to a certain area of service. One is running the, the technical equipment back here in the back of the room. As we do outreach, we can always get involved in outreach. When the church does community service projects, we, we can all get involved in that sort of thing. More people are capable of, of prayer, and we know that the church could use as many prayer warriors as possible, right? Especially in our community here, where there is such an aversion to just the church, and where so few people are interested in actually 
doing evangelism, reaching people with the genuine gospel of Jesus Christ. We're we'll so interested in just, hey, come with me to church. But no, we need to be sharing the gospel, the story of Christ. Invite people to church too. But share the story of Christ, please. And pray for those you share the gospel with. There's something we can we can all be doing. The last thing I want to point out this morning, and we'll probably spend quite a bit of our time here, but as Samuel was continuing to serve God, so we've seen, we've seen how Saul now comes to be Samuel, and that's what this passage is about. He was to look for his goats. Oh, there's a seer. All of a sudden he's connected with Samuel. God's going to say, Samuel, this is the guy. This is the first king. This is the ravenous wolf I told you about. Samuel, we remember he was displeased with what the people were asking. The text doesn't say God was displeased. It's all the text says Samuel was displeased. Yet he got over himself and served God anyway. He was faithful to God in this way. Just like God said it would be in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Right? I will raise up a faithful priest who will do all that is within my heart and my mind. He's talking about Samuel. So here we see Samuel in his old age is still faithfully, faithfully serving God. And here we just we want to make this application, right? No one is ever too old serve God faithfully. I was listening to a sermon from John Piper yesterday. And it was about you know, how to age well in a way that honors, honors God. He was expounding on the scriptures and, and he basically just said this, this American idea, this western idea of retirement is something that is completely unbiblical. Of course he was talking about the work of the gospel and the work of Christ, not necessarily you know, a secular job. Look, in these, in these years, these years of our lives, if we are retired from a secular job, this creates so much opportunity, so much time for us to serve our Lord. For us to dedicate ourselves to our Lord, Jesus Christ. Now this, this retirement mentality is like, okay, I've contributed now it's time for me to sit back and relax and be served. And that is something that is so foreign to anything we see in the Bible. Right? Samuel here is serving God in his old age. Here I have to say a couple of things about the scriptures, about their sufficiency. Because it never fails. I hear someone say, I'm talking about, or before I had a son, I would be, Preaching in Texas was about parenting. This, you know, parenting never failed. Someone would always go, Preacher, how can you talk about parenting when you're not a parent? If you don't have that sort of experience. Now look, we've already seen in Scripture that human experience is not authoritative. As I was growing up, <laughs> when I was younger, <laughs> thank you. As I was growing up, people all the time 
try and teach me, pour advice into me based on their experience. When it comes time for me to have this experience, I try and follow all of the different advice that I got from different people that, regarding the same experience, and I try to follow this advice. None of it worked out. <laughs> and I was like, why are they teaching me this? Because look, different people are different. Experiences are different. Experience is not authoritative for our lives, just like tradition is not authoritative, just like history is not authoritative, just like science is not authoritative, just like mathematics is not authoritative for the way that we live our, our lives. Let me tell you something about this amazing word that God has given us that we have in the, in the Bible, right? I learned more about theology and practical living from Scripture than I ever learned from someone's experience or tradition or mathematics or science or philosophy or any of those things. Now, those things are beneficial. We can gather information from those things. We can become geniuses, right, and know all about the world and how it operates and, and patterns and, and philosophy and history. And we can become geniuses in, in those things. But still not have a heart that is right with the Lord. Still, still lack common sense. Some of you know people like someone. Someone's name just popped into your head. Don't make fun of them. I used to be that way. Sometimes I'm still that way. Let's be honest. Sometimes I'm still that way. Lack common sense. Lack the sort of fruit that is produced from a genuine Christian life. Look, unless, unless God's Word, which is authoritative, does its work in our lives, we're not equipped for life and ministry. We're not equipped for service. We're not equipped for practical living. It is the Word of God that is our authority. By it we are saved. Not just in eternity, but also here. Right? And so I learned more reading the Bible than I could ever learn from any other source. I wish people understood this, right? We would devote a lot more of our time and energy to, to just learning what Scripture has to say, to sitting under the proper teaching of God's Word. And so you ask, how can I teach on a subject that I don't yet have experience in. Because I can just tell you what God says in His Word. I don't have to try and come up with something. I don't have to try and be profound. I don't have to try and give you this cool new way to live life as we age. God has given us everything that we need. So things, they won't work out with Saul. We know that. We know how the story plays out because we spent a couple of weeks now reading the prophecies. And, and many people, if you have any experience in, in church, you know, we know the story of Saul and David. If you haven't spent time in church, maybe maybe that works to your benefit because we don't bring all of this baggage and these preconceptions to the table when we're learning about Saul and David for the first time. But God has been working this out for a long time now. At least 600 years, if not, you know, the foundation of the world. At least 600 years. So God is working this thing out. 
Samuel, according to the gifts that God has given him, is serving God faithfully in his old age. And here, this this morning, we, we just get to some very, very practical advice that Scripture has to, to offer. Did you know that Scripture states, God gives us faith. That God is the one who provides gifts according to His will, and that God is the one who provides opportunity according to His to His will. For any person who is aging and is worried about aging, right? We know this: God, He doesn't take us home until it's time. Which means, as long as He has us on this earth, He has some purpose for us. Some way that he wants us to be serving his kingdom here on this earth. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. We see that faith and gifts are provided by God alone. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So faith isn't this thing that I just have. The source of faith is something external to me. The source of faith is God. And God places the faith we have within us. Right? And according to this verse, God allots to each person the degree of faith that that person needs to live exactly for the purpose that God has for each person to live. This is the way Paul understood it anyway when he wrote the book of Romans. And I'm not going to argue with Paul. Because I'm going to be arguing with inspired scripture. I'm not willing to do that. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. We need one another. God doesn't need us. We need one another. So we come together as the body of Christ, as the local church, devoted to one another. Right? Because we need one another. We are members of one another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Gifts that differ according to what? The grace given to us. Which means God is providing all of this. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. According to what? The grace given to us by God. If prophecy, according to the proportion of His faith, so this faith that God has allotted to each person, we practice our gifts in accordance with the faith that has been allotted to each person. It's different for every person. So I can't say to someone, oh, you need to have more faith. Since who? God allots faith to each person according to His will. Oh, you just need to, you need to do this, this, and this, and this. Says who? God is the one who gifts us for service according to His will. And we each receive a measure of His grace. If service in His serving, or He who teaches in His teaching, or He who exhorts in His exhortation, or He who gives with liberality, that means generously. 
He who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with faithfulness. And the scripture is clear. God provides all of these things. Regarding gifts, this is a little bit clearer in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Who works all things in all persons? God. One God. The same God. It is God who works gifts and ministries and effects, all things in all persons. And so I, it's not, I can't just rely on my education for my experience, right? I can't just rely on my training. Some people just like, come out of seminary and know what I'm doing now, right? Now I have the training. You can't just rely on training. These things, all things, are worked out in all persons by, by God. God must be the one who provides and works out all things. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, which means this. If you are not exercising the gifts that God has given you, you're not being a benefit to me. This retirement mentality, I'm good, I contributed, now I'm going to relax, time, time for me to be served. It seems to be quite the opposite of that, right? All of our gifts are to be exercised for the common good if we are in Christ. The gospel comes first, right? And then and then the works that God works out in His people. Isaiah, chapter 46, verses 8 through 11. God, God provides faith. God provides gifts. God is also the one who provides opportunity here. In the context of Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11, God is reminding people who think little of Him about who He is. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, says this, Remember this, and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors, you people who thought little of me and sinned against me, you idolaters. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Who accomplishes the plan of God? God. Who accomplishes the will of God? God. Who makes these plans and declares these things from the foundation of the world, from the beginning. God. Are we reminded this morning of God's holiness, God's greatness, and God's
God's sovereignty and the fact that God is absolutely Lord. Not only does He just simply provide opportunity, right? But it is God who accomplishes His, His work regarding that opportunity. God doesn't depend on us taking advantage of the next opportunity that He provides. He accomplishes His work. And He moves us to participate with Him. And we get to actively participate with Him as we pursue the opportunities that He gives. But God is going to accomplish His work. He will do all His will according to the prophet Isaiah. The very first confession that we make as Christians, everybody knows Romans chapter 10, or everybody who has any familiarity with, with church or with the Bible, is Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Right? If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and confess with your mouth that what? He is the Lord, you will be saved. It doesn't say there, if you make Jesus Lord. If you confess which is a word that means to agree with, particularly here, to agree with God, that Jesus is Lord. Katie's dad, who was one of my favorite preachers, said that this morning, and I just had to say it too, because it fit right in. To confess means to agree with God. So when we confess that Jesus is Lord, what we are doing is we are recognizing His sovereignty. This is the first confession of a Christian. And if we are not confessing that God, particularly Christ, is absolutely sovereign, as we see described through the Bible, this is the most prominent trait that the Bible assigns to God, is sovereignty. Sovereignty and holiness. And if our confession is not God's sovereignty, Christ is Lord, Romans chapter 10 verse 9 would indicate that we're not even Christians. That we are not saved. Because that is the confession through which the people of God are saved according to just the basic gospel. This is the simplest confession that we make. This is the one confession at the foundation of every other biblical doctrine, every other piece of theology. And if we don't confess this, then we can't even begin to understand who God is or know God. And there are many religious people who confess something other than Christ is Lord, even if they said those words in a prayer at one point, confess something other than Christ is Lord. And the Bible is saying they do not know Christ. They are religious, but they are lost. They hold to a form of godliness which is not real godliness. We have to take this very seriously because that means much. That confession is the difference between life and death. It's that one. Every other confession is secondary to that one, the sovereignty of God, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There's a reason I'm repeating it now over and over again. It's not just because I want to, it's because the Bible repeats it over and over and over and over and over again. Look at how many pages your Bible has. The Bible repeats it over that many pages, okay? 
This is our confession. So God gives. God gives opportunity. God provides our gifts. God provides our faith. God provides our opportunity. So we have our application senior adults, the older generation here. Now is not the time to quit. We don't rely on our own strength. We don't retire from being a Christian and serving God. But we take every opportunity to serve God more, right? Samuel, here in the text for today, his whole life has been a routine. I'm going to travel this circuit, judging the nation of Israel. I'm going to travel this circuit, judging the nation of Israel. I'm going to travel this circuit, judging the nation of Israel. That's monotonous, right? Almost his whole ministry, until he was an old man, which, you know, according to most experts, is like anywhere from 38 to 55 years old. Life expectancy at this time is around 45, 46 years old. Well, Samuel, an old man now, his whole life, monotony, routine, doing the same thing over and over again. All of a sudden things change, and all of a sudden Samuel is about to take part in what seems to us, really it's just the work of God, it's the same work that God is going to do to us, it just seems like this huge thing that Samuel is, he's now going to be front and center, he's going to be the central character, even more central almost than than Saul and David during the time of transition, right? Samuel is going to do his best work in his old age. His, his best work in his old age. Moses, 80 years old, and the people out of Egypt. Best work in his old age. Abraham didn't have Isaac to he was 100. <laughs> best work in his old age. The Apostle John was an old man who became such a threat to Rome that he was exiled to the island of Patmos and from there he wrote the book of Revelation. Best work in his old age. So Saul, Saul's a young, dashing man. He's not going to honor God. Saul, though, he has lived a life faithfulness to God. By God's design. We saw that in 1 Samuel chapter 3, right? By God's design. Samuel's been faithful. What we need in our world, and I think this will remain true, and I hope this news gets beyond these walls, right? What we need in our world today is for the older generations to live fierce faithfulness to God. As an example for the younger generations. And it is not too late to start. Never is it too late to start. And perhaps like Paul, when he, when he wrote to his student Timothy in 2 Timothy, we would be, we would be able to say, I fought the good fight. I've run the race. I've kept the faith. And there will be great rewards, I think, in heaven for this person.
who in old age becomes more fierce in the faith than they have been their entire lives. We'll receive this application for for younger generations, and this would include me. We live our lives now in such a way that we are learning as much as we can about God, getting to know God more, living seriously in the faith, serving God to the best of our ability, not letting the, the things of the world, the world gets really, really good at occupying young people, getting them busy. And in this busyness, we just waste our lives. Time ticks away, and all of a sudden, where did all the time go? I need to do something that matters. Let's not be distracted by this thing that the world tries to do to us. Let us serve God, follow God, diligently, zealously, striving to understand and discern the will of God, so that when when we are also old, we are equipped to do our best work. For Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ. Those of you who have family not involved in church, almost want nothing to do with church, right? Your family needs you to be fierce in faith. For the common good with love, with gentleness, and respect, but, but in a ferocious way. Pleading with them to know Christ. Pleading with them to consider Christ to be more important than all of this other stuff. Because God's Word is better at equipping us than all of this other stuff, right? This other stuff may be beneficial in this world. The scripture is the only authoritative thing for all of life and all of ministry. And I think probably for practical living. Plead with your families. I will plead with mine. This is maybe where we'll see revival in our homes and in the, in the homes of children and grandchildren. People don't just choose to go to church. It takes, takes someone pleading with them to consider Christ worthy. God uses that. God brings his people to himself.